And let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to finish out the chapter tonight uh, with a strong warning. Uh, Thank you for being here. I hear there are a few other things going on right now. Uh, Of course, nothing's as important as this right here. And uh, being in the Word together and rejoicing uh, with what... uh, with what we can learn in Scripture. Just a few announcements as you're turning to Hebrews 5. Um, I want to just remind you that there's a new members class that's starting up next Sunday. Uh, so um, if you know someone you think who'd be uh, interested in being in that class, uh, please let them know, encourage them. Uh, I can't go to every guest, every person in the church and remind them it's just impossible, but perhaps someone's on your mind and uh, you could encourage them to be a part of that class. And then... Uh, I want to encourage you to come to the business meeting on Wednesday night, okay? What fun, right? Business meeting, church business meeting, midweek. Well, you never really know what's going to happen at a church business meeting, so I uh, encourage you to come. It's been very gracious experiences here at my time at Colonial. Looking forward to uh, that with you. And remember, there's some secret information I'm going to give you, uh, some Really exciting, exciting information that you want to hear, but I'm not going to tell you until Wednesday night. So, uh, be praying for that meeting if you would. Uh, be praying about the proposed budget and the deacons uh, on the list there and voting for them. And then uh, we look forward to uh, getting together that night. Well, as we come to the end of Hebrews 5, let me just uh, review. I, just this morning we heard the beginning of Hebrews 5, so I'm hoping you remember much of that. Although as I look around, some of you weren't here, and I know you're working or coming in from other places. Uh, so this morning we took a little bit of time to look at the high priesthood of Jesus. And uh, so the way the author of Hebrews does this is he compared the uh, Old Covenant high priest to Jesus as the ultimate high priest. Uh, Jesus is strong where these uh, Old Covenant high priests are weak. They were subject to weakness. They were clothed in weakness because uh, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Not so with Jesus. Uh, He is greater. He is better. He's not weakened by his own sin. And so he is the ultimate high priest, as we learned this morning, because he functions not only as a priest in heaven for our sins, he is also a king He's a king-priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember any of this from this morning? Uh, Hopefully you remember some of it at least. Uh, Well, it's interesting to me that as I study Hebrews 5, you're reading through the the chapter, you think that the author might have just a little bit more to say about Melchizedek, but he breaks off from it. He goes silent for for a while about him. As a matter of fact, in your Bible, the very last verse of chapter, uh, the very last verse we looked at today in chapter 5, 5, 4, uh, 5 10, he mentions Melchizedek, but you will not hear about him again until the end of chapter 6. So go in your Bible to chapter 6 and verse 20. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. So he's going to give us more information about Melchizedek, but he goes silent. Well, what you can actually see if you look at this closely is that his mention of Melchizedek in Hebrews 5.10 And 620 is actually a bracketing device that marks out a huge warning that will take the last part of chapter 5 and all of 
chapter 6. In between those two mentions of Melchizedek, you get the third major warning in the book of Hebrews. And this word of exhortation that he gives them, I think, comes in four parts. I really like how one uh, recent commentator outlines the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. I've had the opportunity to teach Hebrews several times in different Bible. I call it settings, and I really try to work hard in this section over the years. And I had something like this commentator proposed, but I can't do better than he did. I just read it, and so I want to give it to you. He says that this major warning, this, this exhortation, comes in four parts. Okay, and if you write in your Bible, you might consider this. I have never found a better outline. At least you can write on the handout that I gave you, and then think and pray about whether you should put in your Bible. Um, he says that the movement here starts with, number one, shame. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. So what the author of Hebrews is going to start by doing in the first century is he is going to invoke shame upon his readers for the way they're responding to what he's saying about Jesus Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he starts with shame, number one. Then, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, he gives warning, number two, warning. Matter of fact, some of you keep tormenting me. You say, I really can't wait until we get to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 to see what you're going to say. Well, I've actually been praying for the rapture, uh, and so I think I might fake sickness for a few weeks before that comes, but uh, that section is a very strong warning. So that's the second thing he does. So he starts with shame, then he goes to warning. Number three, he proceeds to consolation. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. So you could write the word consolation. Put a little bracket around 9, 9 through 12. Write the word consolation. Okay, so his warning is not just like straight warning, but he consoles them. I'm convinced of better things regarding you, Hebrew readers. And then number four, he leaves the consolation and he goes to confidence, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. So in this word of exhortation, he goes through those four steps, shame, warning, consolation, and then finally confidence in them. The warning itself is quite strong, but it is mitigated with consolation and confidence. So as we start into this section tonight, all, all I want to cover is the end of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where the author abruptly breaks from his argument about Melchizedek to challenge his readers or his hearers. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 11, Hebrews 5, 11. About this, uh, he's referring to Melchizedek and Jesus' high priesthood. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
So he's starting to this first section where he is attempting to shame them. We're going to learn more about his perspective on their spiritual immaturity. So he's starting to this section. Uh, I just ask, uh, have you ever wanted to learn from someone who was a spiritually mature person? Perhaps you felt a real need in your own heart or soul. You, you detected some spiritual weakness, some struggle, some ongoing issue in your spiritual development. So you begin to pray that God would direct you to someone who could mentor you, someone who'd be spiritually mature. Of course, one of the difficult issues connected to a desire like that is to find the right person who can mentor you. You, of course, would want someone wise. You would want someone who's been around for a while. But ultimately, you want someone who knows the Word of God and knows how to use it in practical, daily controversies and situations of life. In a nutshell, you want someone spiritually mature. But how do you determine if a person is spiritually mature? How do you figure that out? Is age a guarantee of spiritual maturity? I think sometimes we might think that. We know better, but we might think that. Does spiritual maturity then happen if I just simply, you know, stick around long enough, live long enough? Wouldn't it be nice if there was some sort of visible sign or like spiritual power meter that someone could wear that would help you know who's spiritually mature? Uh, maybe that wouldn't be nice because then we would grow arrogant and proud of our numbers. Well, in our text today, the author of Hebrews declares that both spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity are discernible in some way. So tonight, very simply, at the end of chapter 5, I want to observe one mark of spiritual immaturity and one mark of spiritual maturity. Now, these aren't my definitions this isn't my standard. This is what the Scripture says. And so we start, if you have your notes, you can uh, look at number one. A mark of spiritual immaturity is a sluggishness to hear the Word. Verses 11 through 13. Here the author informs his audience that their lack of spiritual death has impacted what he would like to say about Christ. He's limited. So look again at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Verse 11 here, the author says that he's got a lot more he could tell them about Melchizedek. He's got a lot more that he wants to give them about Christ's high priesthood. But it's hard for him to continue. Now, some, sometimes things are hard to explain uh, because they are complex. Uh, some of the things I studied uh, throughout my seminary training, for instance, some of those things, that the, the deeper things are just really complex and difficult to explain. You know, what is the nature of the soul? 
What are different, you know, Second Temple Greek writers, what are their names, what are their philosophies, what are their issues? I mean, some of those things I just gave up on. However, the problem for the author here is, does not have to do with the content. He's got a different problem. Actually, all along in the book of Hebrews, I think that you could hear this just a little bit if you paid attention. So, for instance, look in your Bible at Hebrews 2 and verse 1, where the author of Hebrews says, you must pay much closer attention to. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. He says there in the middle of the verse, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Do not harden your hearts, he says. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Don't let this happen to you. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. Hebrews 4 and verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one might fall. To this point, he's been alluding to the disease that was impacting his readers, but in 5.11, he just comes right out and he identifies it. Sometimes you like it when someone's just like direct, like, tell me really what you think. And and that's what he does in 5.11, where he says, You have become dull of hearing. That's the problem. The author finds it difficult to tell them about the high priesthood of Jesus because his readers are dull of hearing. The word dull is used here in in chapter 6 and verse 12, and these are the only two places it's used in the New Testament. This is a word for the Hebrews. The word dull is a very colorful word, that means that they were lazy or negligent listeners to the word. Basically, with this word and this phrase, dull of hearing, the, the phrase means that at least some of them had an apathetic attitude to what the author was saying or writing. Like what one commentator, how he described it, Peter O'Brien, he says, while they were present in the body, they were absent in mind and might as well have been images or statues. I remember learning how to preach uh, at Northland, and I would go and practice sermons in the storage area of our dorm, and I would preach to boxes. Uh, and sometimes I would think, you know, if I can get used to preaching to boxes and the response I get there, I'll be ready for anything that would come my way. So the reason the author cannot continue to tell them about Melchizedek is that the readers are sluggish in hearing about him. The author here is like a preacher who shares a deep theological word. He uses the word, but then he blasts his audience for all the lazy smirks and their condescending arrogance and apathy. I don't need to know about that. Men and women, sometimes the word 
goes out and it does not find a fertile heart. Instead, it finds a scowl or it finds a hard heart. It's like the word goes out and it falls on a hard piece of canvas or leather or hard wood table, splat. And nothing happens with the word. Men and women, I I know you're here on a Sunday night. I'm just so thankful for that. But this is a danger for any one of us. Some of you could just be here out of sheer tradition and pure discipline and not have a real appetite for the word. And it can go up and down for us. Let me illustrate this for you for a moment. Uh, I grew up in Clymer, Pennsylvania. Clymer, Pennsylvania is a little small coal town in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, I didn't even grow up in Clymer, which has not even a thousand people. I grew up three miles outside of Clymer in the country. Because of that, I was uh, saved from many of the sounds of the city, city life. Right? I didn't hear all of the buzzing, all of the traffic, and so on. However, there, there was one thing at our house that was little unique to its location. Um, our house was located just a few yards off of Route 286 in Pennsylvania. And it was near a very, st- it was near a steep hill and a sharp curve. And my bedroom window was the closest room in the house to that curve. And so when I grew up as a child, all throughout my 18 years, I heard the same sound all night long. It was a sound of traffic, okay? But of certain type of traffic, it was coal trucks going way too fast down the steep hill. I mean, it was nothing to wake up and to see them. You know, they kind of didn't make the curve again, and they're off on the side of the road. But you would hear the sound of a jake break. You know what a sound of a jake break sounds like? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to try to repeat it. Uh, That will be audio that will come back to haunt me later. Um... However, you know the sound. Okay, so you hear this. I shouldn't do it. I'm not going to do it. You know what a Jake break sounds like. Okay? And so, as a child, I remember as a small child hearing that and being afraid. But then something happened to me throughout the years. At some point, I just didn't even hear it anymore. I mean, it was there. But I'd go to see if anything, I like found comfort in it. You know, that's like the sound of the country. Da, 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 da. Uh, I think we can hear the word preached and taught over and over again. And if we are not careful, men and women, we hear things about the richness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's like, We don't even hear it anymore. We don't hear it anymore. And may I say that our hearing of the Word is not dependent upon any sort of intellectual ability that we have, but it should be something that is within our heart a desire. I I think anyone who has cognitive ability can hear the Word. It's, It's amazing to me sometimes 
Sometimes I've, I've had the opportunity to share the Word with, some, with people who've, who have PhDs. And the second you get an inch below the surface, the basics of Christianity, they just can't handle it. They choke on it. And yet there are some uneducated saints who feed with pleasure and profit in the richest, deepest theological truths in Scripture. So we go through this text, I think what he's saying here in verse 11 is being dulled to the Word of God will impact our ability to understand things about Christ. Now some of the Hebrews, if they're listening to what Paul says in verse 11, might have a problem, uh, not Paul, the author of Hebrews, if you're not dull of hearing, the author of Hebrews says, he might have a problem with what he's saying. Okay, you're saying we're dull of hearing. So in verses 12 and 13, he gives them reasons why he thinks that. He gives them the grounds for his argument. And the way he goes about doing this is uh, he, he basically expresses to them that they have an underdeveloped willingness to use the word in their life. And I want to describe his readers to you in two ways. Look at verse 12. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. Oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. I think he describes them two ways. First, they were sluggish listeners who needed the basics of God's word continually repeated to them. So the first mark of sluggish listeners of the word is their need to have the basics of Christianity repeated again and again. I don't think that the author is trying to uh, undermine the basic teaching of Scripture. Milk is a good thing, but he's simply pointing out that they have an immaturity problem. These believers have been saved long enough, or at least profess Christ long enough, that they they should be be beyond elementary teaching at this point, and the text says uh, that they ought to be teachers. As I study that word teachers in Hebrews, it it seems that the term does not denote a particular office of teaching, but rather in Hebrews, teaching is responsibility of any mature believer. (coughs) And so they should be be beyond the elementary concepts, and they, they ought to be teachers. Instead, they need someone to teach them again the elementary concepts of God's Word. And this phrase is a very difficult one. The elementary concepts, and you can take it all kinds of different ways, but I I would take it as the beginning concepts of Christianity. In other words, his hearers need, uh, uh, they need the basic components or the foundational principles of Christianity taught to them and repeated to them. And so I think the point he's making here is that sluggish people, they just don't understand the deeper things of God. They don't get it. They don't even understand the basics. So in verse 12, uh, we learn that the Hebrews needed someone to repeat the basics to them. And then in verse 13, we learn that they need milk and not solid food. Again, this is another way to describe their spiritual immaturity. 
And then he gives us the reason why they need this. They need milk, not solid food, because they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And I just want to take a little bit of time to think through these concepts with you. First, the word unskilled. The word unskilled connotes a lack of skill or experience. Uh, This is the only time I find it in the entire New Testament. And so as I'm trying to figure out exactly what the word means, I I did find it three times in the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament Scripture. And in one of those those passages, Jeremiah 2.6, the author Jeremiah uses this word, unskilled, to describe the wilderness as a land of desert and barrenness. So this word might be understood as some sort of stark barrenness. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is when it comes to the word of righteousness, the Hebrews are stark and barren like the desert. They're unskilled in it. But what is the word of righteousness, right? What's the word of righteousness? I think that's simple as well. The word of righteousness is the word that describes righteousness. It's the word that tells you about righteousness, like we have a high priest. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has not sinned. That sort of righteousness. When the author of Hebrews uses the word logos for word, he normally means the scripture. The Bible. So the Bible is a word that describes righteousness. This righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. So his readers lacked skill and understanding in the word of God. Now let me just make a few applications for us here for a moment. You know, sometimes I think we can discern spiritual immaturity when we listen to someone talk about preaching. These people might say something like this. If you can't show me immediate relevance to my life, then I don't like it or I don't want it. Or if you don't use some sort of illustrations, or start making applications soon, then I don't really care what you're going to say about the Bible. So for instance, someone, you know, you, you, you go visit another church and the preacher goes 45 minutes. And so someone asks you, how was the preaching? It was 45 minutes. Okay. Right? Uh, what did he talk about? Like something about Jesus' high priesthood. I think sadly, many Christians today approach God's word like lazy, little, self centered children who spit it out. They don't want theology. They want something very relevant to their lives. I always joke around with seminary students. They want, they want the nine R's of leadership or like the seven Q's of love or something. I was never good at that. That's why I mock it. Uh, you can tell my outlines just don't even follow that. But I always get concerned when I hear people, believers, 
who are blessedly ignorant regarding Scripture and the deeper things of Scripture, or are very content with the elementary teaching of Scripture. Be honest with you, when they brag like that around me, I uh, think about their ministry. I think about their spouse. I think about their family. I think about their children. And it grieves me. I mean, when you think about this on a foundational level, very simple level, the Bible is God's word to us, his special revelation. He gave us every part of this book in order that we might relate to him. So you get it. The creator of the universe condescended to you and wants to talk to you. And you say sometimes by the way you hear it, no thanks. No thanks. Too deep. Too hard. I'm not going to try. This is a mark of spiritual immaturity. I'm also greatly distraught when many older men and women Uh, with many older men and women who are paralyzed at the thought of discipling someone else in the Christian faith. I want you to think about this. How, How can someone who says that they've been saved for 30 or 40 years not be able to show someone else how to study their Bible or pray? Like Something is very wrong with someone who claims to have been a believer for years and can't teach people how to learn and study the Scripture. They should have matured. Perhaps many of these people should consider whether they are actually in the faith at all. Listen, spiritual maturity is discernible. So how do you receive the Word? What do you do with it? One of the ways we can detect spiritual immaturity is if someone has no or little interest in the richness and the depths of the Word of God. I want to move along, and this last point will go very quickly. I have a half a page of notes. What you just heard was four and a half pages. Okay, so pay close attention. If you flip your handout over to the back, you see a mark of spiritual maturity a mark of spiritual maturity, and that's how I take verse 14. And that's exactly, I think, how the author would want us to take it. A mark of spiritual maturity is that we um, are having, or we have discernment to relate God's Word to our daily lives. Look with me at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Who are the mature, Paul? Or author of Hebrews... Uh, I want to find out who they are. Keep reading. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. 
So you like, might be tempted to respond to what I've been saying about spiritual maturity in the first half and think, you know, then the key is Bible knowledge. I want to be spiritually mature. I just need to know the Bible. But uh, that's not what the point of the author of Hebrews is with these people. Bible knowledge itself is not a mark of spiritual maturity. But as you look into verse 14, you see that the mature are those who can use their understanding of the word to discern good from evil. Or as this text, they're the ones who have their senses trained. So I kind of want to look through this quickly with you. Verse 14 tells us what maturity looks like. Mature people are those who first, and you've got little places to take notes, they have their powers of discernment trained. Okay, I said, I don't have a lot of material here, but you, you just listen. They have their powers of discernment trained. That is, they have trained their senses, the senses that God has given to them, with the word that speaks of righteousness. Okay, so a mark of spiritual maturity is they are the people who have trained their senses with the word. Then we learn how they go about training their senses with the Word. And that's the next phrase. you get got this next little phrase. By constant practice. love how the ESV does this. Very simple. By constant practice. That is, they are in the habit of using the Word. The means by which they become mature is by their using the Word of righteousness in their life. Remember in Australia, uh, interacting with my advisor, Brian Rossner, and he had one thing that he said once in a sermon that I'll never forget. He said, uh, men, he said, you can show great respect for a book. Maybe you've given some significant historical book and you've got like a first edition or first copy. He said, you can show great respect for a good book in two ways. He said one thing you could do is you could, you could put it, that book that you got, in a glass display case. And you can invite people over your house and you could tell them all about the book. He said that's showing great honor for a book. He said, but there's another way you can show that you honor a book and that would be by using it. By using it and applying it to your life. I'm pretty sure he didn't say that you could show great honor to a great book by shelving it. Never using it. Never consulting it. So a mark of spiritual maturity, men and women, is that you love the word of righteousness. You don't hear it as one who's deaf to the sound of the Word. But in this text, you are using it. You have your powers of discernment trained. How? By constant practice. And what is the result? See that at the end? Having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice resulting in the ability to discern between good and bad. That's the value of the Word of God. That's a spiritually mature person. 
Not someone who just knows the Bible. I know all those things. I know all those deeper theological words. That, that's not it. It's not intellectual knowledge, but it's someone who can take the Word and who through constant practice using it have trained the powers of their senses so that they choose what is good instead of what is bad. So how are you hearing the Word? I want you to inspect your own heart tonight. Have you grown deaf to it? Is the sounding of the preached word much like those Jake breaks that I heard in the countryside? I know he's up there saying something. I think he used the word Melchizedek today. But I don't know. If that's you... You need to repent. It's a danger. And you need to pray to God tonight before you leave. Lord, please, please, never let me receive the word like that. I don't want to be spiritually immature. And then I ask as well, how are you using it are you applying the Word to your life throughout the week? Are you showing great reverence for the book? Not by putting it in a glass display case or on a shelf somewhere in your study, but by pulling it off, dusting it out, and applying it to your life. I want to take a moment to close. Uh, we won't close with a song, but let's close in prayer. I'd just like to ask you to do two things for me. As you bow your heads, close your eyes, I'd like for you to pray. And I'd encourage you to do one of two things, maybe both things. First, if you've been convicted about how you receive the word, I would encourage you to repent to the Lord privately. I don't need to know this. If you want to tell me, that's fine. I would love to try to help. But first, I'd encourage you to repent to the Lord. And pray, say, Father, I, I just feel like I'm like, you know, that son raised in the city who always hears the traffic and just doesn't hear it anymore. Or like the boy who hears, I'm like that. If that's not you and you're thankful for the Word and you, you love the Word, you're growing in it, would you do this for me? Second thing I want you to do, would you intercede for our church? Would you at this time just take a moment and pray to the Lord and intercede for other believers in our church? We say we're a text church, right? We say that we're a text church. But would you pray for our church right now that we would love the Word and that we would love to use the Word? Let's take a moment to pray. Let's stand together as I close this in prayer.
Father, as I come before you, the first thing I need to do tonight is admit to you that many times when I hear the word proclaimed by others, I'm dull of hearing. I can zone out, not pay attention, not care when someone is telling me about my Lord and Savior or some piece or portion of Your divine Word that You gave to us as the Creator. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, generate within us, each one of us here tonight, a hunger and thirst for the Word of Righteousness. The only Word that truly describes righteousness to us. Lord, help us to get pumped even about things like the priesthood of Melchizedek and going to Psalms and going to Genesis and going back to Hebrews. Lord, help us to love it, not get enough of it, want more of it. Lord, may that be true of myself and of this church. And Father, I pray as well that we would not only long for the Word when it is preached, but may we long to use the Word in our lives to train the powers of our discernment, of our senses. Lord, by constant practice with the Word to distinguish what is good from what is evil. Lord, would You not only do that in our hearts, would You do that in the hearts of those people that we love? Some of us, Father, have relatives that we are so burdened for. They seem to have very little appetite for the Word. They're not using it in the decisions that, that they make in their life. Lord, would You work in their life as well? We pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, this week, we'd be committed again afresh and anew to use the word of righteousness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.